When I think about logistics and supply chain, a lot of the military failures of the last millennia can often be shown in the light of a, of a logistics failure, whether it's Napoleon trying to get to you know, Moscow in the early 19th century, or, or dare I say, Hitler trying the same thing in World War II, real failures. And, and again, when you're in the military, everyone at every rank level has some form of logistics requirement when they're in a unit where you have to think about ammunition, you have what food and water you have and everything like that. They're very critical things to, to sustainment. So, so it's interesting sort of taking that mindset. And then certainly from a team perspective, you know, there's a lot of ethos around military sort of team building and everything like that. And I think that has a lot of value in construction and certainly a lot of people from the military get into construction as well. And I think it's a great mm. second career for, for military people. Hello everyone, and thanks for tuning into another episode of the Bricks and Bytes podcast, your go-to for all things construction and property technology. On today's show, we have James Swanson, founder and the CEO at Voyage Control. With James, we discuss supply chains in our industry, crossovers between the army and being an entrepreneur in the construction tech, and many more. If you're enjoying our podcast, please check us out on Spotify or Apple or wherever you listen to your podcast from. And if you enjoyed it, please leave us a review. This helps us to get more amazing guests to give you guys the best and most informative content on technology in the built world. And shout out to our sponsor, Beta. If you want to connect with some of the biggest players in the construction tech world, including tier one building contractors, some of the biggest construction tech companies, investors and advisors, check them out by visiting www.t-beta.com and this is www.the-beta.com. You are listening to Bricks and Bytes Podcast, where we take you on a journey in construction, technology, and business. All right, let's get this episode started. James, you're joining us here, nearly 15 years of building your construction tech, or is it construction tech? Well, it definitely is now. We sort of pivoted or pirouetted sort of back in 2012 from passenger transport into logistics and freight and then into construction in sort of 2015, 2016. Yeah. And that's very firmly where our core focus is right now. Yeah, nice. So tell us, how's it been? I know you've got a bit of a decorated career, decorated the right word or or diverse. D- diverse is probably better. Yeah. yeah. So no, I, you know, I was, well, I did law at university and much to my parents' disappointment, probably joined the army at the end of university and instead of becoming a lawyer, which I'm definitely happy I did <laughs> and yeah, had a number of businesses and then uh, obviously got into to this one, which has been my sort of focus and passion, I guess, for, for a very long time. Yeah. And you are the second guest we've had in this studio, actually, that was part of the Australian Army. So, oh, really? Oh, yeah. Cool. Shout out to Luke. Yeah, he was there. And funnily enough, you're both in London as well. Oh, there you go. There nice. you go. Yeah. Tell us, what do you do at uh, Voyage Control? So. The construction industry, I mean, everyone knows about the way it's behind in technology in general, but one area where it's particularly behind in is managing supply chain and logistics. Yeah, and I was, I was actually chatting to someone about this this morning. Yeah, anyone in a billion-dollar business that's a fast-moving consumer good company will have people who are managing supply chain. When I was at university, I used to pack shelves at Woolworths, and you used to know where all the cereal packets were or, dare I say, the Marmite sort of uh, <laughs> bottles are and, and all this kind of stuff, whether it's in the back of the store or the warehouse or on the shelf. In construction, you'll have a, a half million pound piece of equipment and no one knows where it is. Yeah. So for us, it's really about looking at how we can help our clients sort of address that part of, of the sector. 
And we sort of have started with last mile deliveries and sort of scheduling and managing those processes about getting vehicles into site and materials on into site and time, and then managing the sort of on-site resources, so the sort of tower cranes and hoists. That being said, we're, we're doing a lot of work now, uh, particularly off the back of doing the MSG sphere in Las Vegas to look at end-to-end supply chain management. Was it MS? Madison Square Garden Sphere. You've probably seen it on social media, like the big sort of sphere with yeah. that oh, big yeah. eye that was frightening everyone in Las Vegas. Oh, so you've done, you done some work? Right? Yeah, so they used our software to manage all their logistics. Oh, okay. so, awesome. yeah. oh wow. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. I wish I yeah. prepared a bit more for uh, asking uh, some more right. stories yeah. about that. Yeah. And you mentioned Brisbane earlier. That's where you were. Right? Sort of. I was born near Sydney. And then I grew up in Asia in Brunei and then finished school in Brisbane and went to university there. And then I was in the, the army, so I lived all over the place. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So we want to, like, obviously we do focus on construction tech, but we focus on the entrepreneurship and the kind of stories and methods behind the madness of people that build these great companies. You had a strong, well, I think it was like 18 years in total in the army. Yeah. So it's sort of 10, 11 in the Australian army and then another sort of seven or so in the British army. Yeah, cool. So it'd be good to tap into your experience there yeah. and how that has got you into position you are today. So tell us the craziest story from your life in the army. Keep it PG. PG. Yeah. yeah. So I was. So when you sent me those questions, I was thinking, okay, what's an, a good story? So I'm going to use an adventure training story because I think that speaks to entrepreneurship a bit. And um, mm-hmm. I learned to ski in the army, and the way that the army does adventure training is they just push you and push you and push you until you sort of get over any fear or concern or worry so and it's embarrassing learning skiing as an adult because you're sort of in in europe and you've got all these little two and three year olds that can ski very well and you definitely can't and and i think you know one of the big lessons from that was you know when you're skiing down a slope if you're panicking you're 100 percent going to fall over yeah and so it's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy whereas if you sort of are confident in what you're doing and you sort of are focused on succeeding you're far more likely to succeed than not. And so I think that's an interesting sort of story for entrepreneurship as well. So, but, you know, certainly, you know, when you're in a war zone, you see some interesting things and that also gives you a great perspective on life. And, you know, as difficult as entrepreneurship can be, it's not quite life or death, Mm -hmm. (laughs) literally. So I (laughs) I think, you know, that helps anyone who comes from a military background sort of understand that. Yeah, I guess a little mistake in entrepreneurship. It could be, you could bang your head against the wall, but well, you say like, obviously no one's going to get killed, but in construction, I mean, maybe that's the case. But yeah, if you're building a software business, obviously not. You've obviously done some time on the battlefield. What some of the key kind of experiences and lessons from there? Yeah, every war zone is different. East Timor, when I was there in 2000, had gone through a fairly horrific period with a lot of the population killed or displaced. Where was that? East Timor. It got its independence from Indonesia in 1999. Okay. And so that was a very, I think, challenging situation of sort of trying to go into a place and think about how it needs to be fully rebuilt. Certainly not as bad as some of my mates who went to Rwanda and so on a few years previous where there was just horrible massacres and and everything like that. Iraq in 2003, different environment. Sorry, I was supporting it in 2003 and there in 2004. You know, very different environment as well, particularly when things were kicking off in Al-Ambar province with Fallujah and the sort of first battle of Fallujah there in April. Yeah, and that was you know very difficult for a lot of the guys. I mean, I think an interesting sort of lesson with Iraq in 2003 was a failure to remember the lessons from World War II about if you're going to go in and take over a country, you can't sort of annoy everyone sort of straight away. You need to sort of think about rebuilding the population and employment and stuff like that. And that was a, a real failure 
not necessarily the military leadership, but certainly the civilian leadership. And then Afghanistan, crazy place. So, mm. uh, you know, I was there in 2009, 2010, serving with the Grenadier Guards. It was the most kinetic year for the British Army in Afghanistan. The unit before us, uh, the Welsh Guards, their commanding officer was killed. Company commander was killed. Platoon commander killed. Wow. You know, the injury rates and the death rates for officers were pretty terrible, as it was for soldiers. We lost 15 guys in our battle group and 60 or 70 were permanently injured. So um, it was a fairly punchy tour for for everyone involved. So, And that absolutely gives you a very different perspective yeah. on, uh, on life. Do you have more? Would you say like that experience gives you more of like, okay, what's the worst that could really happen? It's more of like, I'm not very good with words, so I'm just going to say more of don't give a fuck attitude. A little bit, but I think it helps you to focus on what's really important and not sweat the small stuff as much and, you know, and still be appreciative. The sun will always rise tomorrow and, you know, you'll always have a bed to sleep in and, you know, all that kind of stuff and food on the table. So, yeah, I think it does absolutely give you a, a different perspective entirely when you see some of the sort of damage and destruction out there in the world. So, mm. yeah, it's, yeah, do you hear much from like, I don't know, obviously we don't have probably have as much information about that, what's going on in Afghanistan more recently? Not as much since the very embarrassing sort of Dunkirk-esque mm. uh, withdrawal happened, which I think for most of us in the military was a real slap in the face. Mm. So I don't know anyone in the military that thinks what happened was a good idea. And I think it was very poor judgment on behalf of the US president to do that. Not that I want to get too political, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we could save that for another time. Yeah. I know you were in, um, you mentioned 2004 in Iraq. And obviously we were on a podcast and one of the biggest podcasters that we know in the world today, Jocko. Did you have any uh, interactions? It's probably a massive place and it's probably a very naive question. No, no, I don't, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. So between, I mean, obviously you mentioned within the army, the mistakes you make whilst building a business is never going to be that. Yep. There's never going to be a big impact compared to someone's life at risk. But are there any like major crossovers you see? Oh, 100%. I think, yeah, there's these sort of principles of war, which I think are incredibly relevant to business. And I think about them quite a lot. I think I actually wrote a blog about it yeah. a million years ago. What's it called? The Principles of War. Okay. So Klaus Schwitz was probably one of the first key sort of theorists to talk about that. But every major sort of military has a doctrine around sort of those principles and, you know, it's concentration of effort, sort of ensuring that you're very focused on a particular outcome, flexibility. And flexibility, I think, is one of the most important things for any entrepreneur because you've got to try things and if it works, that's great. If it doesn't work, you've got to tweak it until mm -hmm. it does. So you have to be very flexible. You know, an entrepreneur cannot be rigid about how they sort of succeed. They need to be able to be very flexible and sort of overcome obstacles and everything like that. So when I think about logistics and supply chain, a lot of the military failures of the last millennia can often be shown in the light of a, of a logistics failure, whether it's Napoleon trying to get to you know, Moscow in the early 19th century, or, or dare I say, Hitler trying the same thing in World War II, real failures. And, and again, when you're in the military, everyone at every rank level has some form of logistics requirement when they're in a unit where you have to think about ammunition, you have what food and water you have and everything like that. They're very critical things to, to sustainment. So, so it's interesting sort of taking that mindset. And then certainly from a team perspective, you know, there's a lot of ethos around military sort of team building and everything like that. And I think that has a lot of value in construction and certainly a lot of people from the military get into construction as well. And I think it's a great mm. second career for, for military people. Yeah, definitely. We had, we had some people on in America, they have uh, even like charities and maybe they have them over here as well for um, like ex-army veterans going into construction or giving them the, the resources that yep. they need. And one of the ladies, I think it's Lynn or even April, they came on together 
big proponents yeah. and done a lot with them with their company. Yeah. So shout out to them. You mentioned logistics and yeah. how that tends to lead to failures, I guess, within yeah. campaigns in the army. Does was that a motivation for you to start what you're doing now? Not really. Take over a country. <laughs> yeah, well, sure. Yeah. So uh no, but I think any military officer, the logistics needs are just hardwired into you. But I was an infantry officer and then an intelligence officer. And I think some of the work I did in the intelligence community was potentially a bit more relevant. So, mm. yeah, there was a lot of disjointed sort of intelligence collection that used to take place. And actually, if you read into some of the failures around 9-11, a lot of it, it links back or goes back to sort of agencies not sharing information and, and everything like that. So the final job I did in the military was about bringing together intelligence sort of collection capabilities to provide real-time common operating picture for people on a battlefield. And really that comes back to better decision-making. So and if you can use technology to improve your decision-making, then you're going to do better regardless of whether it's a military environment or a business environment. So I think that was a key thing that sort of has sort of driven me with this business as well. Because ultimately if, if people don't know the information that they need to make better decisions around their supply chain, then they're going to fail or, or just be incredibly inefficient. So I think that's been a primary driver of, of what we're trying to achieve. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. Are you guys using any kind of hot topic at the moment, AI? Doing yeah, so uh, I'm a little bit cynical about that still. I reckon a lot of people like chuck machine learning or AI into a snazzy sort of PowerPoint presentation to get investors interested. Oh, yeah. And, and investor even admitted to us that like, yeah. if you haven't got AI in your name at the moment, forget it. Yeah, and it's, it's sort of ridiculous because when I think about some of the projects that we're helping our customers with, they're struggling to actually get the basic data together anyway. So you're never going to build a decent yeah. machine learning model if you don't have decent data inputs to start with. So, I mean, we're really still dealing with people who are using paper and spreadsheets and WhatsApp groups and emails. And sort of trying to say you're going to go from that to some cool artificial intelligence logistics solution is presumptuous at best. Yeah, I agree with you. It's, it's a common theme. Like you say, data is all over the place in various formats. And me and Martin were having a debate the other day with someone about construction is very drawing based and you can't put, like, I mean, there may be a way, but you, it's difficult to put like lines on the drawings, which are essentially graphics into any form of data, which can be then used or leverage of AI. Someone's probably going to kill me for saying something like this because I bet someone's working on it. But conclusion we had. You mentioned influence of war. That was right. Have you read any books like Sun Tzu? Yeah, I mean, I think everyone sort of goes through a bit of Sun Tzu. And, yeah. Yeah. And he certainly has a few little quotes around supply chain and logistics okay. and all, all that kind of stuff. So I'll have to dig those out. Do you remember any of them? Oh, there's a good one about how you know, logistics is the line between success and defeat. Okay. Sort of, oh, wow. Yeah. Do you have that in your office? I probably should. So. Yeah, it sounds like yeah. a good idea. Yeah. There's also some other, I haven't got around to reading it, but 33 Strategies of War by Robert Greene. I don't know if you've heard of it. Oh, no, I haven't, no. It's renowned. He's a great author, um, writes some good things. So what does it mean to you when you hear the word teamwork coming from your background? That's a great question. I think if you put yourself in a military context, you know, the reality is that no one person can you know, do everything. You're stronger as a cohesive team. And you know, it's important to have people around you that can support you where you're weakest and, and where they're potentially strongest as well. And that plays out in any kind of environment, whether we're talking about just, say, our business or whether we're talking about working with customers with other construction tech companies as well. So you know, you're bringing the best of 
a number of different companies to bear. You know, it's interesting. I had to do a pitch for a, a big deal that we won where they wanted a sort of tech ecosystem. And one of the things we put on the slide is someone who is, if you've got a team doing a relay event with swimming, they're going to be better than someone who's trying to do freestyle one way, backstroke the next, etc. If you have the best of each discipline, you're going to perform better than any yeah. individual. So I think that was quite relevant too. Yeah, do you, obviously it's in your blood now, but when you're like hiring and making decisions on people that would be suitable to join your team, are there any principles that you learned back in the day that you've applied to that process? Yeah, a little bit. I think, you know, the challenge with hiring and we've had real challenges with hiring, particularly given geographic nature as, as well. Geographic, you mean like? With staff around the world. Yeah. We operate in 14 countries now. I think it's hard until you've actually got someone who's been working for you for a couple of months, you're never really going to know what they're like. Yeah. Maybe that's overly cynical, but I think it's, I agree. it's very proved. So, yeah. So, so basically it's just a struggle and I don't know, you just have to work out if you like them for two months, extended yeah. probation. Yeah, I think everyone seems to be a cultural fit on the day one when you've hired them, whether that's the same on day 90 is, is a very, very different question. Of course. And leadership, you were in a higher leadership major. Yep. What was, is there like a, a rule book as such? There's probably no single rule book about that, but I think there's a number of principles that anyone who's in a leadership position has to live by. You know, before I went to Iraq, one of my mates said to me, and I think it's a good one, it's sort of you need to be able to look at yourself in the mirror the next day when you're shaving you know, and sort of say that you've made the right decision you know, the day before. And I think that's a good thing. It's also true that as a leader you have to make hard decisions that not everyone is going to agree with, but ultimately you know, the buck stops with you and you need to make decisions, you know, isn't always easy. But if you don't do that, then you're definitely in a lot of trouble. Yeah. How about decision making then? So I think one of the most valuable things out of the military, which I don't necessarily see that much outside is the military decision making process. So mm. typically as you're thinking about, you know, tactics for a battle or whatever, you go through a particular process and a number of steps about how you weigh up different courses of action about what you're going to do and what the benefits are or disadvantages. And that's sort of something I do constantly with, with everything we're doing. You know, sort of like a cost-benefit analysis on steroids. Yeah. And I think that's really critical because ultimately when you're making decisions and when you need to make decisions very quickly, you need to weigh up potentially a lot of things at the same time. And sometimes you're potentially the only person that has access to all that information. You know, do you focus on this area or that area? Mm. How do you prioritise particular things? And, you know, you need to, in the back of your mind, have all of the factors in place to sort of make those decisions. So that is absolutely one of the best things that came out of the military. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and how, when, because obviously some decisions are more impactful than others. Going to make a coffee is quite easy. I'm going to make a coffee, but like, okay, we're going to go into business with, or some, we're, we've been offered X amount of money to something, someone or something. How do you decide on the, the caliber of process that you should go through in order to make the right decision based on the kind of subject or the nature of that topic? And before you make the decision, you need to, accept that you could make the wrong decision and you just have to move on if you have made the wrong decision. You know, the reality is until you've made the decision, you're executing on something, you don't know whether it's going to play out the way you hope it will. So you can't bash yourself up too much if you do something wrong. I mean, every entrepreneur makes lots of mistakes. I make mistakes on a daily basis. It's about making, having more successes than failures, I guess, hmm. uh, as an entrepreneur and, and just accepting that and moving on and, and learning from those mistakes. But yeah, I think... Yeah, we, we've just gone into a new market with a local joint venture partner and that's required us to sort of steer slightly off our product roadmap 
particularly as we're rolling out a brand new version of our platform. And, and so that's required us to you know, really stringently think about, is there going to be a return on investment that's quick? A good example of where I look at that is comparing putting money into sales in the US versus mm. the rest of the world. So in the US, we can typically get a 100% return on our initial investment in six to seven months yeah. of hiring someone. In the UK, that's 18 to 24 months. Why? Sales process there is so much faster. Oh, okay, yeah. Yep. Yeah, we, we had this comes up quite a bit as well. American people are way more, uh, like, yeah, let's do it. Yeah, and you don't go through crazy long RFP sort of processes that sort of very opaque at best. And you can get a $20,000 contract over there with three days worth of work or a $20,000 contract here with six months worth of heartache and pain. So, mm, mm, yeah. Sounds interesting. Okay, so long-term vision. Obviously, you have, in your business, you obviously, you're setting a vision and you're working yep. towards that. But I'm guessing with, Comparing that to army life, obviously you have to be, you mentioned it earlier, agile and make quick pivots in what you're doing. How do you approach that? Yeah, that's a great question. And if you go back to say a, a military campaign approach and you say, think about the D-Day landings, that was you know, a concentration of force at one particular point where the allies were able to sort of overcome the Germans and then build a beachhead and then grow from there. And that was a very specific application of a lot of force in one place. I think a lot of tech companies can sort of say, hey, my vision is you know, this big and try and do all of that at once and bore the ocean. You really need to focus on one objective and you know, take that hill and then take the next hill and then take the other hill and then you'll get the mountain range. You know, so I think that's how we think about sequencing those operations. We certainly want to be this sort of end-to-end -end supply chain platform for the construction industry, but the industry firstly isn't ready and we don't have the market penetration to do that. So it's about getting those beachheads with mm -hmm. key customers in key markets so that we can get that sort of customer base where you can actually then start to execute on the bigger vision stuff that we have. So, I mean, there was a wonderful concept called Better Place a decade ago that raised a billion dollars, which was all about electrification of vehicles all around the world. And they ran out of money because it was wonderful vision, but they were never going to be able to deliver that quickly. So, and that's the way we see it. And then even you know, with customers, it's about how do we provide quick wins to customers and then take them on the journey of going from a paper-based logistics management tool to using digital in a very basic way and then moving them along a, a point towards maybe in a decade, AI may actually yeah. have real value, but certainly at the moment it, it doesn't. So. so really small, basic steps. Like yeah. It's quite... I don't, like obviously you're more logistics biased, but in construction, you, like people will look at other industries and think, oh, they digitize very easy, like finance and stuff like that. But obviously it's much easier in those industries. Um, so it's all about just getting like one, let's say paper process you have at the moment put into a digitized format yeah. and like can be as simple as that. And there's nothing wrong with that, doing that right now as in Absolutely. 2023. Yeah. People probably think that we should be doing way more, but I think you just end up in too far knee deep and you're like, and your potentially over-engineered solution that's too expensive. It may make sense conceptually and technically, but financially and, you know, and you're too far ahead of your customer base. We wanted to integrate our platform with scheduling back in 2020 and then stopped very quickly because we knew our customers weren't ready for yeah. it. So you can't be too far ahead of your customer set. And then you need to be careful that your customers are actually going to go on that journey as well with you. But again, you, you can't get too far ahead of them. Yeah, 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 definitely. You can't force them into something that they're never going to want to do either. No. How do you deal with, like, obviously, 
yeah, let's take this beachhead and then move to the next and take the next beachhead, whatever it might be. What about if something unexpected happens? Contingencies. We always expect unexpected things to happen. <laughs> yeah. So whether it's you know something going on with the product where we have to focus on something that has broken, realizing that there's a new priority and everything like that. And that's where flexibility is really important. Because if we have a not quite a 12-month roadmap of everything we want to do and the priorities for this quarter have changed multiple times just because of how the, our customer group wants to do things. So, yeah, and this is, flexibility is just so important with that. And we always have to apply that return on investment sort of strategy about if we build out this feature, how many customers, is it going to help a million dollars worth of customers or a hundred thousand dollars worth of customers? Mm. So that, and yeah, we, we've literally built an entirely new platform 10 years into having our first platform or actually two versions of that. We need to build a new platform and we've done that. Uh, and so that's an interesting experience to go oh, through. Yeah, I was well. gonna, that sounds like, oh, I can't think of like personally anything more, potentially worse than having to like almost rebuild. Yeah, it, we, there are a number of architectural reasons why we did that, but actually what it, it also helps you to sort of strip out a lot of things that you've potentially built that don't make sense anymore mm -hmm. and haven't been used. I think the challenge for every sort of tech business early on is, you know, you've got a, a big customer who's saying you have to build this feature or else we're not going to use you. Yeah. You build it, then they don't use it, and then you're, you've still got the sort of overhead of trying to maintain that feature and stuff like that. So it's been great that we've been able to sort of rebuild the whole platform and it's i mean we're on almost 40 sites globally with that so we've still got several hundred sites to transition over over to it but yeah we've made a decent start yeah sounds good if you have a feature say that you uh is there because some big customers demanded that you put it into your system but you know it's like a complete i don't want to say failure but you know you're spending resources on your license going nowhere at what point do you say right we need to cut that that's a really hard question there's a feature that we haven't built yet uh, it's sort of for people to do 15 minute delivery bookings onto job sites and a few construction companies are very wrapped up around oh we need to have 15 minute bookings and then you sort of say well 80 percent of your bookings are 90 minutes long so why are we even bothering with a 15 minute yeah. booking because it's never going to happen particularly given inner city sort of congestion and everything like that so we've lost contracts because we haven't had that capability and then there'll be other contracts where it's like you must deliver this capability we've delivered the capability and then it's they don't want it anymore so mm. so we're a lot more selective now in terms of what we're doing and we're sort of i think fortunate in that a lot of the development where we have scheduled for the next 12 months is based on what customers are actually doing and what they definitely need in the next 12 months rather than speculative stuff yeah we've had 12 million deliveries booked on our platform so we have a lot of data to yeah. to back us up in anything that we say and even if a customer says hey we want to do this and it's like well over the last hundred thousand bookings you've made you've never done that and you've never needed to so why is that important oh that's great yeah i don't think people will have many comebacks to that no well they try to sometimes Although I can imagine, yeah, like people, you know, when you're planning, everyone's super ambitious at the start of a project and yeah, we're going to do this whole thing in like 12 months or so, because it's never been done before in 12 months. It's like, yeah, but we can do it. We're sitting here now and we say we can do it, but yep. in reality, it's never going to happen. Yep. And it's probably why so many construction projects are always so-called delayed because the expectation from the start is just completely wrong. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. How about stress? How did the experiences in the army help you deal with like managing your emotions and stress? I think the military is probably better now with sort of people talking about their feelings and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. So, and I'm still not particularly good at talking about my feelings <laughs> and so on. 
yeah, you definitely need to be able to separate the challenges of business a bit with, you know, and you need to be able to de-stress a little bit and, and have some outs and, and things that can sort of take your mind off off the challenges of, of the workday and, and stuff like that. So, yeah, and I, I think yeah, otherwise you just get pent up with rage and fury at, at some point. So with all the issues that exist. So, yeah, I mean, I used to run a lot, which was always a good sort of thing to do. I like cooking. So I actually find cooking quite cathartic. Yeah. This one also. So pruning roses is actually quite a cathartic. Really? Yeah, wow. absolutely. I used to think that gardening was going to be the most boring thing in the world, but I quite enjoy pruning roses or that kind of stuff. That so, sounds yeah. It's all the things people say and you're like, you don't know, and then you try it and you're like, actually, this is great. Yeah. I think someone said to me cooking, which was amazing, and they said they like cooking when they're not in a rush to do it. Yeah. I was like, that is a game changer. When you can actually take your time and do it, whereas if you're prepping like dinner, say, I prep dinners in the morning for our evening, for our yeah. dinner, evening meal. And it's not, it's not as fun. No. Because my partner used to do it and I was like, I don't mind doing it. I quite enjoy cooking. Now I'm looking at the time and thinking, I've got like half an hour to do this yeah. and it's just like chopping everything. Yeah. It's not, no pleasure about it. Yeah. So yeah, enjoying it. How do you prune roses? And like, just explain what is pruning roses? So because I was traveling so much, my sort of official home for a few years was out in the countryside and my friends had a big rose garden and yeah, you've just got to get rid of all the dead heads off it and stuff mm. like that. It's listen to a bit of music, have a bit of wine and you know, prune some roses. It's pretty cathartic. If we'd had this discussion a few years ago, I would not have ever said that. <laughs> yeah. And you probably would never have thought about doing that. Absolutely. Well. Definitely not in the army. So yeah. Any key, this one's from mine. So any key lessons that discipline teaches or helps accomplish in life? And would you be the founder and CEO of Voyage if it was not for your time in the army? I think, yeah, discipline is really important. And but discipline is important for any sort of thing that you want to do. Like you're never going to be good at anything. I mean, you'll have some freaky people who can do amazing things without any work or discipline. But ultimately, you have to be disciplined. You need to be getting up in the morning and do everything you need to do during the day and, and try and execute against as many things as you can do. You have to be, and particularly if you're in a leadership position, you have to be disciplined to keep on top of things. I mean, people aren't going to work for you if they don't see that you work hard and try and achieve all your objectives. So I think that is, is very important. And that sort of carries on with how you have to conduct yourself and in everything that you do so and certainly coming from a military background it has been very valuable to do that and you do get that sort of little pleasure with making your bed in the morning and all that kind of stuff which was subject of a, a very famous sort of yeah. speech a couple of years ago as well so yeah and then to the second question i mean i think i've always wanted to be an entrepreneur a lot of military folk don't become entrepreneurs yeah. but again a lot do but i think yeah it does give you that resilience to go and try and lead an organization and, and do things so it's definitely been a key contributing factor, the position I'm in at the moment. If you weren't in where you are now, what would you be doing? I have no idea. So, <laughs> yeah, I sometimes think about that question. I think I've just been so focused on this sort of topic. You know, most of my knowledge and relationships are all around sort of construction and the built environment. And I think I'd probably be a bit stuffed if I wasn't, if I wasn't doing that. That being said, I wouldn't mind sort of owning a, a vineyard somewhere or that's probably something for retirement or yeah big exit the business yeah and open a wine well when i was in san francisco in 2017 i think one acre or one hectare no i think it was acres like two hundred fifty thousand dollars. so yeah that helps you stack it up in your mind and yeah probably need a lot more but yeah <laughs> i don't think san francisco would be a good place no i, I don't, don't think the land's very cheap there yeah yeah cool 
So logistics and construction, where do construction materials in the UK come from typically? So, I mean, you've still got a huge amount of materials that come from overseas, obviously aggregates and things like that are local, but a huge amount of materials comes from Europe, particularly fabricated materials. And then you'll have sort of steel and, and other things coming from, you know, whether it's Europe or Brazil or Australia or Japan. So, you know, UK construct, actually, I mean, most countries have global supply chains when it comes to construction. Yeah, no, fair enough. There's a certain types of timber that come from places like Russia as well, which I know in some of the projects I'm working on has been a bit of a sticking point. Yeah, I mean, I spoke to a very senior person in a very big construction company a couple of years ago, and, you know, they've got a net zero target by 2030 in their supply chain. It's like... Do you think that will happen? No. Most of them have these great aspirations and it's absolutely important to to focus on that as a target but a lot of these companies don't actually know where their materials come from mm. so but even more basically they don't even know how many pieces of steel or timber they have so they don't even have the basics in place before understanding what their supply chains look like and that the regulatory impact of that is going to become bigger and bigger um, yeah. over the next few years whether it's around things like modern slavery or sanctions particularly in, in the context of russia and belarus and so on so and i think in 10 years the industry will be very different in terms of the way that it approaches its supply chain management do you have any involvement with um circular economy or like you familiar with the term absolutely i um i used to mentor someone that was on the young leaders group for the green building council here in the uk and he came up with this brilliant circular economy idea of you know reuse recycle materials and then the company he worked for basically wasn't interested so he had to go and start his own business are doing that. I think there's a huge opportunity for using materials in the built environment. And I think it's going to absolutely have a, a lot of place. I mean, one of our customers, it's a developer there in the US tracking the waste being taken away from their job site so that they can sell the scrap metal and, and everything like that. So there's 100% benefit in that. And then obviously the waste to energy sort of opportunities are significant too. Yeah, I'm more less optimistic about it. I think people kind of think or government set like these 2030 targets yep. whatever they are and it's like they then paint the whole industry that they've all got to be hitting this net zero whatever it is yep. by 2030 but the industry is so broad you're not going to have small builders saying that are applying to the same rules as like yep. big builders and that kind of thing so i don't know what like they obviously give you a marker but it's like the kind of methodology and what that actually means is always yep. very gray and woolly yeah and same with things circular economy my opinion is in construction we can't even implement change like BIM, which has been trying to be going on for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, however long. So how are we going to get people to go and stamp all their materials? I don't know. You know a lot more about materials than I am. Yeah. I think it, any change is yep. extremely tough. And it takes decades. I fully am supportive of circular economy as a concept. And I think most people would be, but it's the, how do you put it into practice? Mm. And I think there's a lot of innovation. Yeah. We all heard about greenwashing years ago, and I think there's a lot of innovation washing out there as, as well where, and it comes from tech companies, it comes from construction companies as well and say, oh, we're going to do X and it's going to be really cool. And it's like when you sort of scratch the surface, none of that happened and it wasn't done on an industrial sort of scale. And it's a real shame, but I think it will, but yeah, ultimately all of this is about behavior change. And when you talk about, say, financial services and, and digitization, they've been doing that for 40 or 50 years now. I think in by 2040, 2050, maybe the construction industry will have, Caught up. I mean, what, one thing that I think will force that, particularly in a place like the United States, is the the shortage of skilled labour. 
if you've got half a million sort of job openings in construction, then that's a problem. You can't suddenly find half a million sort of skilled sort of construction workers in the US or through a, a sensible immigration strategy, you need to think about technology. So, yeah, very perversely, I think that might even help here in the UK, um, given Brexit and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, and then you've got to kind of weigh up what so-called crisis is more important to tackle. I was listening to a podcast about like the dangers of AI and the, the realms we're finding ourselves into and like the genie's been out of the bottle kind of yep. sayings. And construction, you obviously have like labor shortages, housing crises and the sustainability side of things. So it's like, where do we focus? Because you can't do them all. No, you can't. It's a really interesting challenge in, in a lot of countries. And I think you sometimes have to think about that in a business as well. Like, do you focus on getting one thing done right and then get on to the next thing? Yeah. Or going back to that beachhead sort of, how do you take a mountain range? You take one hill at a time. You know, you can't solve every problem in the UK you know, single-handedly, particularly through a single election cycle. You know, a lot of these strategies are going to take years and years to do and bring, and will need lots of different stakeholders. Yeah, you're not going to solve the housing crisis in the UK in a three or four year period by any stretch of the imagination. Then you say, well, do we need to stop immigration because that'll reduce the number of people who need houses, which is also the wrong answer. Yeah, There's a lot of things to contemplate here. Or do you improve the building stock, make it more sustainable? So Yeah, that's the other, that was the other counter argument to like circular economy is just retrofit what we have. Like. Yeah. I don't know. Lots well, in some respects, that is an example of so economy as well, isn't it? So. Probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to say I know. What do you experience the key pain points for logistics are? So COVID brought that home to a lot of our clients, particularly in that we, we did this study and it was a survey done of about 150 top CEOs in the US construction industry. Virtually all of them had had major supply chain problems over the last couple of years. So the cost of material delays with certain material types. And then strategically issues of if all the chips are coming from China or Taiwan, what happens if there's a war over there? And then that's sort of brought around a, a range of construction projects in sort of nearshoring in terms of building chip factories in the US and, mm. and stuff like that. So, I mean, there's just a multitude of issues. And then, you know, the, the validation of where things are coming from is pretty crazy as well. I mean, there was this story two years ago of a very large cement company paying sort of protection money to ISIS in Syria and the Middle East. And it's like, that's interesting. Yeah. So Stuff you don't hear about yeah. too often. All right, cool. You mentioned your pastime ones, personal growth regime. Yeah, I'm not too good at that at the moment. I need to read more books. And by saying read more books, I think I say read books as opposed to reading an article online. I need to, I've got a couple of interesting books that I have on my shelf that I haven't read for several years. So I think just sort of, again, sitting in a garden and reading a book and having a glass of wine is probably a good thing to chill out and, and just sort of take some external perspective on what we're doing as well. So that's definitely something I need to do. So, yeah. Yeah. Favorite type of wine? You mentioned it a few times. Yes. Yeah, so I'm actually going to Italy in a few weeks for a bit right. of a wine tour, which would be very nice. So, but I'm an Aussie, so I'd have to go <laughs> with a big, bold Aussie red. It'd probably be uh, something I always love. Okay, cool. And last one. How do you manage, as a CEO of a company, obviously it's, uh, we mentioned this before, but it's, it's high stress. How do you manage work and personal life? And do you think work-life balance exists? Work-life balance is a constant challenge, as my fiance continues to remind me. So, <laughs> but yeah, I think it's great having a partner who's understanding and also tries to get you to have a bit of a work-life balance as well. So you're not working seven days a week. Because I think it 
would be very easy to, and maybe this is the discipline question again, you know, you need to ensure that you are taking time out to recharge and relax and do other things. And so, you know, I think for any entrepreneur, having a bit of a work-life balance is important because ultimately at the end of the day, the business might fail and, and you do need to still have a, you know, some health and life around you. Mm. And limited liability in the UK means you could just go and start another one tomorrow anyway. Yeah, exactly. So, Maybe. all right, James. So where can um, people find out more about you? Yeah, so voyagecontrol.com is our website and uh, people can just take it from there. So, yeah. Sounds good. And Procore Groundbreak, you'll be speaking there. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, got a speech on project controls and uh, ESG with a couple of our clients. with uh, So with Tishman and Hit Construction and, and actually someone from Procore will be on the panel as well. Awesome. Yeah. Well, we'll be there too. So Excellent. Cool. All right. Cheers, man. Thank good you. Good stuff. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Bricks and Bytes podcast. If you are enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We really appreciate it. And we'll catch you in the next episode.